Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's podcast, how is China doing with the coronavirus? Are they recovering? Are they getting back to normal? Alberta Premier Jason Kenney has endorsed Conservative Aaron O'Toole for the leadership. Is he fighting with McKay? And Coastal Gas Link Pipeline says they're investing $115 million into the Wet'suwet'en Band over the next 25 years, helping to lift them out of poverty. Why are we protesting? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. What has been happening in China? How have they been handling this? Is there a slow in the spread of the virus? Is there a pause? And are we starting to see people return back to work and these cities slowly get back to normal? Let's bring in Jia Wang, Deputy Director, sorry, China Institute at the University of Alberta and is with us now. Jia, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on. Uh, we're certainly hearing a lot about this now uh, coming a bit closer to home, but let's get back to the source. How is China doing? Is China recovering from this? At what point or what stage are they at now? Well, China, uh, compared to a month ago, China is definitely doing better. Um, there's uh, there's still new cases every day and there's still new um, deaths every day, unfortunately, but the rate of uh, new cases and, and new deaths uh, are slowing, um, and, uh, and some other countries like North Korea, actually, uh, sorry, South Korea, are um, uh, in, in some of the past days are um, passing China in terms of new cases emerging, and and uh, there also appear to be uh, more new cases in Iran, um, and given the large base of the Chinese population and also the large um, uh, pool of people are uh, infected in China already, um, having fewer new cases, um, it's a good sign. What about the people that have been or are infected? Are there people that are recovering from this as fast as people who are getting it? Uh, definitely, there are a lot of people who, uh, the majority of uh, the people who are down um, uh, contracted, who have contracted the virus, um, have recovered, um, and uh, they're uh, a lot of, of course, there are still new cases, um, but uh, there are more, much uh, more uh, or many more people who recovered from the virus than those uh, who fell uh, ill um, with the virus. Uh, who has passed away? Who has died? Uh, what sort of uh, category would these people fall in? Are they certain categories? Is it people from all walks of life? Well, um, I, I'm not a, a virus expert. I have to uh, put that uh, mm-hmm. disclaimer in. Um, but uh, at least according to uh, China's experience, uh, for this particular uh, virus, COVID-19, um, it, uh, the deaths, um, uh, the more severe cases uh, concentrate uh, in the age group that is, it is older, 50 uh, and above. And uh, some say even um, when it comes to gender, more um, males and and also those with pre-existing conditions like those who are diabetic or with heart conditions uh, and older uh, are more likely to fall ill more uh, 
seriously, and the death toll uh, for those, uh, especially above 80, uh, is significantly higher than those who are younger. And it's also very interestingly, this particular virus, um, uh, as the Chinese experience shows, that it doesn't seem to affect uh, really uh, young patients as much. Um, so um, children are not seen to be affected by the virus as much. Uh, we have certainly heard how parts of China shut down, isolation, um, businesses closed and such. Is China getting back to work? Are things getting back to normal? China is gradually getting back to work. Um, of course, at the peak of this uh, uh, coronavirus, it just happened to coincide with the uh, Chi- Chinese New Year, so that was right. um, in late January of this year, and and in China normally for that particular week it's a national holiday, so almost nobody um, was at work. But um, even for a normal year when there was no threat uh, of the virus, a lot of people would at least take the week before the Chinese New Year. Uh, off to travel home, and then uh, many of them may also take the week after the Chinese New Year to um, come back to work. So often there is that two to three weeks uh, time where a lot of factories in China, um, schools and, um, and companies are shut down anyway for the Chinese New Year. And this year, uh, the government of China basically um, dic- uh, mandated uh, a longer uh, holiday time, uh, a mandatory sort of holiday um, for the whole uh, country. So um, that added to the official uh, national holiday week. Uh, so that uh, was already in place and, and passed. And also after um, uh, that uh, essentially the second week after the Chinese uh, National Holiday Week. Um, many companies, um, uh, under government instruction, uh, encourage their worker to, uh, when they can, especially high-tech companies, to work from home. Uh, and, and many factories uh, are not allowed to reopen until recently. Uh, but even when factories reopen, uh, some of those uh, factories tend to um, have their workers coming from, say, certain parts of China uh, to self-isolate in uh, company dorms for 14 days before um, fully return to work. So there's some measures being put in place, and almost all the universities and schools are still um, uh, closed, uh, but their online um, uh, classes are ongoing. So a lot of classes resumed, but it became online classes. So would you say that China is over the hump yet? Uh, have, has this peaked in China for them? Some experts say, um, as we see the cases, slow, uh, the new cases as, um, uh, are slowing, and it's a sign that it's Somehow China might be over the hump, um, and uh, but some caution. Maybe we need to give it a few more weeks uh, because there are more and more people are coming back to work uh, to some of the larger centers like Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, and some of the larger centers. Um, and we may have to see if there's going to be some sort of a research of uh, cases, and they're even reporting of 
cases that came from Italy or other countries, um, and, and somehow the Chinese um, locals get uh, infected by travelers uh, coming back from uh, other countries. So the dynamics uh, keep changing. Um, so it probably good to you know wait for a few weeks and to see if uh, things really calm down. Uh, should we be talking about m- more about those that are recovering? It seems there's a lot of hysteria right now. It's tough to balance it all. Obviously, this is a new virus, not much data information on it. Uh, it doesn't appear to be as fatal as something like SARS or some say even the annual influenza, yet obviously it spreads quite quickly from human to human. Why are we so concerned about this if it is not as deadly as influenza? Uh, well, uh, if we do compare the uh, death toll of this um, virus, it, generally speaking, it is higher than influenza. It's just that it hasn't affected as many people right. uh, yet. Uh, so every year in North America, millions of people would be um, would come down with a, f- a flu. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and then of course a few thousand in North America um, would die from the normal well, seasonal flu, and most of them are um, the elderly and with pre-existing conditions. Uh, but the seasonal flu also affects the younger, uh, really young infants and and, and young patients mm-hmm. as well. Um, and this particular virus is not definitely not as deadly as SARS, um, and uh, but it's it's more spreadable yeah. uh, than your average uh, seasonal flu, so that's why people are concerned. And also uh, because there's no uh, antibiotics or or uh, effective drug that could um, effectively kill the virus, and, and no vaccine available, so. Basically, if someone get it, and for the majority of the population, when they get it, the case uh, would be relatively mild. Um, and uh, it's basically what the healthcare system would provide is to support uh, the patients to help reduce their symptoms. But um, what we have mm-hmm. right now uh, in hand, those tools cannot really, um, say, kill the virus. It's more like supporting the patient's um, um, immune system and, and to help fight the virus. So I think that uh, make people concerned because, oh, there's nothing uh, really can kill the virus. And also this, um, this virus is more likely to spread uh, than your seasonal flu virus. So, uh, and the death toll is higher than the seasonal flu. It just, at this point, of course, uh, we hope we'll never get to the point where right. millions of people will be affected. Uh, How will it. this affect China in the long term? How has this changed life in China? Well, it, it definitely has uh, changed lives for, especially for those families who um, had their loved ones, um, you know, either um, pass away from this or uh, affected in a major way. Um, you know, their lives are forever changed. Um, but for the Chinese society as a whole, I mean, this is unprecedented. Uh, there has never been uh, a case quite like this one, a city with millions of people um, essentially on lockdown and still on lockdown for like over 40 days now. Um, and that has just never happened <laughs> in, in even in a country like China. Just to keep um, this in perspective, how much of the country is actually shut down? How much of the country is functioning normally? Uh, it's 
depends on um, um, on which day you're looking at. But uh, in Hubei province alone, uh, during the peak time of this virus, uh, over 50 million people uh, were under some form of um, uh, shutdown or isolation or quarantine. And that's a big number uh, just out of the one province because all the other provinces don't um, – all the other provinces have cases, just not uh, clustered or not as concentrated. So they are uh, various cities and, and townships are uh, under some sort of quarantine or uh, limiting access of uh, visitors. Uh, but um, Wuhan and Hubei province uh, has been really the epic center and has been the place where most of the shutdowns happened. Are you surprised and that this hasn't spread more within China? It appears as if they have contained it to that area. Is that accurate? I mean, obviously there's other cases, but not certainly to that extent. That's right, yeah. And uh, that's uh, what a lot of these severe shutdown measures uh, have done is to really limit the spread of the virus and, and uh, essentially limit it more to this uh, Wuhan the city and also the province of uh, Hubei. But as people return to work, um, especially some major uh, centers um, like Beijing, Shanghai, and Guangzhou, and there are a lot of uh, workers who uh, work in those cities actually returned uh, home for the uh, national uh, spring festival, for the national holiday, and now they are uh, gradually returning to these major centers. And so that there is the concern that there may be another mm. cluster here and there. Um, but those cities basically implemented measures to ask people to self-quarantine for 14 days wherever you came from uh, before returning to work. And they uh, also implemented some measures to limit how many people can work in a, say, office tower at mm-hmm. a given time and ask people to keep space, even in restaurants, in, in those restaurants that reopen. They ask people to uh, keep a certain distance between each other when they uh, mm-hmm. dine in a restaurant. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of kind of rules emerge. But one thing, um, I, I think it's a, it's um, a, a good outcome uh, out of this uh, very sad situation is uh, the uh, banning of uh, wildlife um, um, uh, consumption as a um, food source uh, and, and banning of um, trading of wildlife in those markets. Uh, that's still believed to be where the uh, coronavirus, this new COVID-19 virus was originated, was from wildlife um, mm-hmm. food market. So the government is uh, basically uh, banning um, wildlife um, trade for for food. So it is slowing in China, however, still not there yet. Still lots of work to be done. Uh, Jia Wang has been with us, Deputy Director, China Institute at the University of Alberta. Jia, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney has thrown his endorsement for the Conservative leadership race behind Aaron O'Toole. What? How did this all happen, and when did we start doing that uh, at this stage of the campaign, I guess? Let's bring in uh, Cheryl Collier, Associate Professor, Political Science, University of Windsor. She is with us now. Cheryl, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, happy to be here, Scott. So what is the relationship like between Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, and uh, Peter McKay, leadership candidate? 
Well, uh, I wouldn't have called it close beforehand, but right now I would suggest it's a little bit frosty. Um, there was uh, this wasn't just an early endorsement for his uh, his rival, which we hadn't really heard Jason Kenney say much about previously. Uh, this was this was this included actually a, a bit of a veiled uh, uh, shot towards uh, towards Peter McKay, uh, kind of referencing his uh, stinking albatross uh, comment that he made uh, towards uh, Andrew Shear. And and I I wonder if some of this also has to do with the fact that I understand that uh, Jason Kenney and Andrew Shearer are fairly close. So why is this happening now? Why did he decide now to do this and, and especially use the, why bring up the albatross comment? Well, uh, I think the albatross comment was uh, it was to kind of uh, get, get a dig in, I think, while he could. Um, and uh, Jason Kenney sometimes is pretty good at, at uh, adding that in at uh, apropos uh, Times, uh, so I would I would kind of chalk it up to a little bit of that. Um, as to uh, the decision to do it now, if you think about it, you know this is not a, a, a race of, of a lot of really high-profile, exciting candidates. I think what some of us have, have lamented the fact that uh, all the exciting, interesting people seem to be taking a pass on this. Uh, is that why Kenny's bring? Is that why Kenny's bringing up O'Toole because he's in the he's in the shadow at this point? I think so. I don't think a lot of people know about Aaron O'Toole. Uh, he did run the last time, came in third. Uh, but, you know, I think he could use a little bit of bolstering, particularly, and it's, this isn't just also about this leadership race. It's about afterwards. It's about, uh, you know, connecting quickly with uh, with Canadians and, and uh, putting the Conservative Party in a position of power because they're, they're uh, quite, quite interested in bringing down this uh, minority government of Justin Trudeau. And uh, the sooner they can do that, the better. So I think there's a little bit of long game happening here as well as well. But I think getting back to the timing, if, if you look at, you know, who we could see as a presumptive front runner, it really is Peter McKay. He is the person that has the highest profile. He's the one that uh, seems to be getting the momentum, the early momentum here. And in a in a race with 10 people that are not that exciting, if, you, if you've already got that kind of head start, it's really hard to, to, to pick, pick up and, and close that gap. And I think, uh, you know, Jason Kenney is nothing if not politically astute. He knows that probably the earlier this happens, the better for Aaron O'Toole, particularly when he was watching Peter McKay get ahead of, of uh, such a he- so far ahead of the pack. Uh, you know, early polls have him uh, uh, clearly the front runner. He's uh, been able to raise a million dollars already, which is, is quite a lot of money uh, at this stage of the campaign. Um, and we really only have a little under four months uh, before the, the Conservatives have to make the decision. So why not uh, throw a, a bit of a monkey wrench into to the this uh, uh, this plan of, of having uh, you know all the all the wind in your sails as as it seems to be for for Peter McKay, particularly if you're not happy about that, and and clearly I think that's that's part of the reason why uh, Jason Kenney came out. Does it seem uh, does it seem wise though? I mean, from a party perspective, to uh, be picking on someone who was making fun of Andrew Shear, who obviously did the party didn't want anyway. I mean, it just seems that he's bringing up Andrew Scheer and the albatross and the, the, the part of the party that everybody wants them to get away from. Why would you want to go back in that direction? 
it's interesting, and I I don't know if there's been as much thought put into that part of of the of the way in which the statement came out. You know, we keep talking about your grandfather's conservatives and how yeah. we need a modern conservative government, and Kennedy to me just took two giant steps backwards in that respect. Yeah, and and you know, at a at a time when the party should be, uh, you know, being able to coalesce around yeah. one person, this is not sending the right signals. I agree with you, and they don't have a lot of time to kind of mend these rifts. Makes you wonder, though, how deep these rifts are inside the party. And um, you know, sometimes you you might do your best to paper over those, or maybe if you're not happy with the way that that papering is going. And and think about it: if you're in the Conservative Party and you're more on the right, you're more on the social conservative side maybe you did like sheer and you're you're watching somebody that seems to be a little bit more centrist seems to be pushing the party in the direction of the Brian Mulroney progressive conservatives that maybe in your past you fought against and you you don't like that direction you you uh, may viscerally have a problem with that and that that really is I think one of the the things that this party has to reckon with and I'm not sure if they're doing it during this leadership race uh, it, it honestly you know like they've been given a second chance here to come back and reinvent themselves and they're putting on the same old old suit it it Mm -hmm. seems like in a land of extremes it seems that we now live in does this party not realize that its opportunity is in the middle not on the extreme right well, that's certainly what I teach my students in my classes. <laughs> that, you well, know, maybe you should get Kenny in there. It, like, <laughs> it just seems odd. It just seems that he just, it, it looks like they're destined to repeat the same mistakes. It does. And, uh, and you know, you think about, too, how like, Kenny's world of, of, uh, of kind of setting himself up as, it, it, solidly in opposition to a lot of that kind of centrist thinking uh, in Alberta. Uh, you know, they are in, in some tough economic times at the moment. They seem to be voting in a way that that doesn't align with the rest of Canada. We have this discussion now of the uh, the Buffalo Declaration and the uh, and the potential for uh, for uh, you know separatist forces uh, gaining traction in 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 Alberta. And none of this, unfortunately, seems to uh, to kind of sing from the song sheet of let's all work together. Um, and I, this is a problem. I think it's a problem. Canada writ large, but it's also a problem in the in the short term for the Conservative Party. And uh, until they get their heads around how they're going to deal with that and 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 look a little bit more like they're they're coming together, this is I'm not sure that this leadership convention on its own is going to be able to to uh, to accomplish that. And even becoming more modern and just like I said, not your grandfather's Conservative Party. Like my goodness, it's 2020. Where are all the young minds? Where are all the young ideas? Does this further de- divide the conservative party does it further divide east and west because again this is becoming an east and west issue it is and and we're we're seeing a little bit of this i think even the fact that uh, that jason kenny and and i think you were saying that this is this is a little bit unheard of you're correct it's it's really it's it's odd to have a premier a endorse anyone in a in a leadership race because they're going to have to work with whomever uh, actually wins so you're kind of setting yourself up for a, maybe potentially an uncomfortable set of conversations and and inter- 
interactions moving forward because your your job as premiers is still there. Um, and and if you think about the fact that normally premiers just tend to stay out of these things anyway, uh, it, the fact that he decided to do it and that he did it so forcefully, not knowing what the outcome will be, is uh, is quite interesting. Um, it's and 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 it, it's it's it is seems to be driven by some of these divisions that you speak about. If you think too about uh, we keep hearing that a lot of people in the Conservative Party want to deal with climate change. They want to deal with some of the things that at least it, it appears that the West have been yeah. maybe in a bit more opposition of. Uh, they, I don't know how we're, we're going to kind of come to kind of a common ground middle here. Whomever is the, the victor is, has got a, uh, a long road ahead, I think, uh, in, in trying to deal with some of these things. It sounds like Jason Kenney is jealous he isn't in the race. He wants the job. It's interesting. Uh, I was reading a bit before coming on air with you today, and McLean's reminded me that uh, Jason Kenney used to be quite interested in this job, yeah, uh, yeah. and I think he had been tagged by many as a potential successor to Harper in an era when Harper was pretty good at, at not identifying potential successors. Uh, he seemed to be one that uh, that managed to, to, to have that uh, label attached to him and, and in a positive way, and I think he himself had embraced it. But he, uh, uh, you know, made the decision decision to run for premier um, and and has gone in that direction and that that does in some ways can put you in opposition to the central government um, and particularly the way in which he has framed his position as Alberta premier totally in opposition I would suggest at this moment to the uh, federal government um, so I don't know if there's some jealousy there or maybe just jealousy in in not um, agreeing with the direction and thinking that he he has a, a prominent enough place in the party that he should be able to help uh, nudge along uh, where he would like to see the Conservative Party go without actually taking it on himself. All right, comparing O'Toole to McKay. Uh, O'Toole, uh, cabinet, uh, been in cabinet, veteran affairs minister, uh, unlike McKay, a uh, foreign affairs and justice minister. When you compare these two, what is the difference between these two leadership candidates? Well, uh, again, uh, when I was reading a little bit before coming on air today, I was again reminded that both of these uh, are, uh, MPs are were former uh, progressive conservative members. Um, and, of course, the Peter McKay used to be the leader of the progressive conservative party. He's the one that actually uh, went and, and, uh, and, and united the right with Stephen Harper uh, to make the Conservative Party of Canada. That was when you had the progressive conservatives and the Reform Party back, back away in the 90s. Um, and so uh, both of them come from the progressive conservative uh, side of, of, the, of that aisle. But, uh, but interestingly, even though Aaron O'Toole ran in the last uh, leadership race, he's, and, and some people would have put him probably to the left of both Scheer and Bernier, who were the two frontrunners, O'Toole himself came in third. Uh, now he's decided that he is uh, going to cast himself as the true blue candidate. Because um, Peter McKay's farther to the left than he is, closer exactly, to the center, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's a... You know, it's a safer lane for him than to try and uh, be exactly like Peter McKay. But of course, he neither of these two are very, uh, you know, further to that social conservative right, uh, more in the kind of the the vein of of, of uh, Andrew Scheer. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see as the as the contest moves forward how much Aaron O'Toole really wants to kind of take that cloak on of that side. And and with this endorsement, I'm I'm not sure uh, whether or not we'll. Uh, we'll We'll see uh, him him kind of uh, tack more 
further to the right because he sees more of a lane there. Remembering too that a lot of the uh, the, the conservatives that are that are going to come out and vote uh, that are really you know true believers and that uh, they they may actually want to see somebody uh, you know uh, uh, demonstrate that that right way and social conservative thinking even if it doesn't really uh, map well onto the rest of Canada as as we were mentioning before. But that seems to be the differences between the two. As you mentioned, of course, O'Toole is only he was only a cabinet minister for a short period of time, and Veterans Affairs is not really a high-profile position. Uh, not It's certainly not as high-profile as Minister of Justice or Foreign Affairs, um, and he's never led a party before, uh, even though McKay did it for a very short period of time as leader of the Progressive Conservatives, he, he actually has. So there there is a little bit of a, not a David and Goliath here, they're both MPs, they do have some you know name recognition with the party but um it, this is some of the the if you really like O'Toole as an alternative this is i think some of the reasons why you saw uh Kenny jumping in to try and uh kind of uh add a little bit of weight to uh to that column because comparatively they there there's uh, obviously some uh, some uh heightened interest and heightened uh, uh veteran uh, uh knowledge and and uh, political acumen on the side of uh of uh, McKay Hmm. Will this will this endorsement hurt Kenny more than it will help O'Toole? Will it hurt Kenny and the Conservatives more by even bringing up Andrew Scheer or the Albatross statement? Uh, does he does it do more to hinder than help? That's a good question, and I, I hate to use this trope, but <laughs> time will tell. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this is received. We're still pretty early in uh, in uh, kind of uh, parsing through this. Um, you know, I I don't like to count Kenny out. He's he's a he's pretty politically astute. Um, so if if somebody can kind of make this work for himself, I think. He he'll probably be okay. It'll be interesting to see how it reflects on O'Toole. So even though this is uh, in an, and some people have said this is probably a great endorsement to get, probably you know one of the better endorsements inside the party because of of Kenny's uh, positioning in the party and how how high profile he is specifically. Uh, probably you know Stephen Harper would be a better endorsement, of course. And I I'm not sure he's going to to stick his uh, hand in the ring uh, to to actually you know tip where he he uh, has preference um but uh it it's um it, it'll be interesting to see whether or not this might backfire potentially on O'Toole because for some of the reasons you said um yeah. you know if it does start to to cleave him more to the right and more people in the party would like to see it modernized are thinking a little bit more strategically about what's the next election going to look like for them and maybe not wanting to repeat some of those mistakes they just finished you know, getting passed with sheer. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, again, time will tell a little bit, but there's always that potential that it might backfire. Uh, does this turn the West against Peter McKay? That's interesting. And I think, I don't think so. I think McKay's going to play this pretty uh, pretty uh, safely. He is going to continue to try and court votes in the, in the West, knowing that that's an important uh, failure, I would argue, and, and I think everybody would, of the current liberal government, uh, the fact that they cannot bring the West in. So he doesn't want to be seen as, as emulating that in inside the Conservative Party itself. Um, so he I, he has to uh, obviously reach out, and I, and I would not discount his ability to do so. Um, he's 
he does have a lot of backing inside the party, um, and a lot of people have already started to see him as uh, as a, as you know the obviously the early front runner, and and they've already started to say, okay, I'm you know I'm I'm in in Peter McKay's court, so they're going to help him, I think, reach out uh, to the uh, you know people in the West just because Kenny has thrown his hat in the O'Toole uh, ring does not mean that that's you know everybody in the West is going to follow suit. I think there's still a lot of road left in this uh, leadership campaign. So you don't think this will fairly, further alienate the West in any way? I, I I hope not. I I guess I'm trying to speak as a Canadian that cares yeah. about the fact that the West feels alienated right now, and I yeah. think a lot of us are in that that camp. Um, I I and I don't think the uh, that the Conservative Party wants that to be the case. I don't think they want to emulate that split inside the party. I think they see the Conservative Party sees themselves as naturally aligned to the West and to understanding that alienation. So it's in uh, everybody's best interest, whomever wins this race, to uh, to make sure that 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 uh, they are representing uh, the West, but at the same time showing that they care about the rest of the country. So I'm hopeful that that doesn't occur. Uh, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney has thrown his endorsement for the Conservative leadership race behind Aaron O'Toole. Cheryl Corlier is with us, Associate Professor of Political Science, University of Windsor. Cheryl, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we've been talking an awful lot about the go- uh, coastal gas link pipeline. That's a natural gas pipeline going through BC, uh, delivering uh, natural resources to Tidewater there. Uh, and, of course, the, pro- the protests that have gone on as a result of that, a lot of them in support of the Wet'suwet'en community, even though uh, we have heard that uh, the majority want this in order to uh, help alleviate the poverty and, and lift these communities out of poverty, government subsidized poverty, uh, with with good paying jobs and such. And now uh, uh, Coastal GasLink says they will be investing $150 million into the Wet'suwet'en band over the next 25 years with this project. That's if it ever moves forward. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at Scrooge School of Business, uh, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be with you. Is the message getting out on how much this benefits the Indigenous community? Because it it almost feels as if, uh, whether it's a politician on either, star, on either side of the fence here, or whether it's an activist, we're cherry-plucking the things we want from the Indigenous community that support our cause and forgetting about all of the rest. Are we hearing the other side of this story? Well, I would tell you first that there's probably about four or five sides to this story, and you're absolutely right. Depending upon what I want to get across, I ignore the other sides and only promote my own. Mm-hmm. For instance, there are people out there who are opposed to the pipeline simply because it's a pipeline. All natural resources should be left in the ground. If we're really serious about climate change, leave the gas where it is, or if it was an oil pipeline, leave the oil where it is. Don't build a pipeline, period, full stop. There are band councils, 20 band councils along the 670-kilometer route of this, 
who've all agreed to this, and in partly they're agreeing to this, as you pointed out, because of the economic benefits. They're going to be able to invest banned money into this and get a return. They're going to be getting royalties on this over the next 25 years. But there's also going to be construction jobs. Uh, Coastal GasLink, you know, again, whether you believe them or not, so far they've awarded $600 million of construction projects to native-owned businesses, and they've still got another $400 million worth of these contracts to award. That's separate completely from any royalties for the gas that passes through those areas. But a third dimension to this, of course, is the question of just who speaks for whom. Uh, I mentioned ban councils. Well, uh, there are many people from the First Nations who say that's really a, a symbol of colonialism. That's a white man's construct. They don't really run things for us. We believe in the traditional chiefs and the, the uh, clan hereditary chiefs, excuse me, and the clan mothers. They're the really the people who are speaking, and that's what led to all this blockade. It wasn't the band councils. They were all on board, but somehow some of these hereditary chiefs, five of them specifically, had not been on board, and that's what we're now spending our time trying to deal with. I don't think they're neglecting the benefits, but they're saying this is really about who speaks for who. You talk to the wrong people. We, we need to be accommodated. And that's what's, you know, some of the challenges when you deal in First Nations issues. Uh, how much of these, how much do these projects help the Indigenous communities? Because we hear so much about how Canada has neglected uh, the Indigenous community. We hear about dire poverty and lack of opportunity, yep. lack of a future. How do these projects, how much do they help these communities? So I have to distinguish between what was standard practice in the past and what is standard practice today. It is absolutely true that in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, as we did uh, uh, exploitation of natural resources, uh, very little of it went back to the people in that area. That was not a key concern back at that time period. But I would say for the better part of at least 10 years, if not getting closer to 20, this uh, idea of sharing the wealth around has become more and more and more important. Uh, Coastal GasLink was first proposed back in 2014, so it's been around now for the better part of six years. And one of the big pushes back then was not simply, yes, we're going to transport some natural gas from point A to point B, but this is a chance to benefit everybody along the way. And, and I think that has become a more significant message. Now, remember, Scott, you and I are talking about the Coastal GasLink pipeline. That was actually just a provincial project. It didn't require federal approval. The one that has been held up the most federal, that's the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And whatever you see in the Coastal GasLink, multiply it by almost 10. That's, again, how much more benefit there will be along that route. But I'm also willing to bet, uh, you and I have talked about this before, 329 329 First Nations groups were consulted around Trans Mountain. 320 of them have signed on in various forms because of the benefits, but there are still nine that have not. And before that project can be completed, you've got to get everybody on board. That's the, the challenge. It's not a, I just go speak to him, and once he's happy, everyone's fine. I've got to speak to them, and there's a lot of them out there. Is this the answer to lifting the Indigenous communities out of poverty that we have been hearing so much about for decades? Well, again, it's not a one-size-fits-all answer. There are many, many, many things. There are many First Nations communities that don't have 
that chance to share in resource development. So when we hear about things like uh, dirty water or unsafe water in some areas or schools that are in, in need of work, some, me, some of that might be in Nunavut, Northwest Territories, Yukon. They don't have the resources flowing by their doorstep that they can tap into for those royalty payments. So to lift those communities, we need a different strategy. But where we can use natural resource exploitation, I think we should. And so in the case of northern B.C., um, it's it's been estimated there is something like 10,000 jobs, some of them only during the construction project, which is to go from now until the year 2023, but some of them ongoing because those pipelines have to be maintained and monitored, what have you. And there are a lot of people saying not only are these 10,000 jobs, but these are not 10,000 minimum wage jobs. These have a good wage associated with them. They will definitely improve the economy of those areas. Unfortunately, not every First Nations group has a project like this in their backyard. Your thoughts on where we are now with the Coastal GasLink pipeline? It appears that due to the meeting that was held over the weekend, it, and it appears that there were successful talks in regard to uh, uh, the challenging uh, land rights and title and such, but nothing in regard to the pipeline. That being said, we hear that the construction is continuing. Where is this going? What happens next? What's the next shoe to drop here? Yeah. Well, we've got about three of them here. So first, it is a 670-kilometer pipeline. Uh, the Wet'suwet'en uh, people, the um, uh, traditional chiefs and clan mothers, do not affect the entire length of it. They only affect a, a, a piece of that. So you can do construction in other parts where everybody is on board while you wait for this piece to come together. On the weekend, successful negotiations. Those first negotiations weren't specifically about Coastal GasLink, but they were approach to resource development. A framework was developed, and now that framework has to be taken to the Wet'suwet'en people. So you and I don't know what's in that framework. That was another part of this until they've had a chance to talk about it and, and agree to it in whatever form that agreement takes place. It will remain quiet, but everyone's hopeful that that new framework is something that can be applied in future projects, not just to this one, but to other future projects. And then... The five traditional chiefs, last time they spoke on this issue, said they remain opposed, but they also are open to continuing talking. So if we can get the framework, then we can come back to the table and say, well, what can we do? And that may require a little rerouting around this or that or something else, or maybe it is, again, a different profit-sharing arrangement. We don't know what, if anything, could get them to change their tune on this, but at least we're talking and we're not blockading. From the case of CN, and I know you're not asking about it directly, but just so everyone knows, CN has now recalled all the workers who were laid off, and now they're working to cure a backlog of products that should have been shipped. They think it's going to take at least six weeks, maybe eight weeks, to get uh, the train shipments back to normal, but things are finally progressing. Uh, won't help us in the first quarter of 2020, but will get us in a better shape for the second quarter. Where would this leave the Trans Mountain if this is what we have now with the natural gas pipeline? Even more important to get these things solved before you get too far down the road. So yay that you've got 320, but now you've got to focus on those last nine and get your envoys, get your discussions, get your, get your people out there. Uh, if we can avoid this with Trans Mountain, 
again, here's the funny thing. The federal government really did not have a role in Coastal GasLink. This was a provincial pipeline approved by the province. They were the ones, but the Wet'suwet'en people said, we will not just talk to the province, we want the federal government here. So the federal government stepped into something that really is not under their control, but Trans Mountain is, that has a key value, partly because we own the Trans Mountain Pipeline, you and I and every other citizen of Canada, and also because it was a federal approval because it crosses provincial boundaries. In other words, it goes from Alberta to B.C., and that's where the federal government got involved in all this. It's just as important, if not more important than ever, that we get all those I's dotted and T's crossed. All right, let's talk about uh, the coronavirus and how it is altering business. We're now seeing that even in the coffee industry that uh, it's affecting. Uh, We've heard, uh, I think, Timmy's and Starbucks have said they don't want you bringing back your refillable cup anymore. They'll just hand you the paper cup that's for one use. Uh, Your thoughts behind all of this? Well, for Tim Hortons specifically, uh, next Wednesday, March 11th, was a key date because that was to be the start of the Roll Up the Rim contest. And because, remember, they were going to refresh this, bring it into the 21st century, do some new things. The way the contest was supposed to begin, for the first two weeks, you'd buy a Tim Hortons coffee and you would get a refillable cup. Look at us. You know, we're not polluting the environment. And all those cups are going into storage because until we get coronavirus sorted out, they can't be delivered. I think we'll still have a roll-up the whim, and I think we'll still have the app out there. But they wanted to really knock it out of the park to have a green environmental component to it. And here's again that balance about single-use products. Single-use products, you don't worry about uh, passing viruses along. And so it has affected them across the board. We've also got a stock market that is very, very jittery. What are they jittery about? A recession. It's been more than 10 years since we had the last recession. So they're like chicken little waiting for the sky to fall. What's the sign of a recession? Uh, Today, markets are down and even went down a little yesterday. Actually, less to do with COVID, but more to do with oil. There was a big meeting of uh, OPEC. They were going to cut back their production of oil by one and a half million barrels of oil a day in a hope to drive the price up, uh, get it back up to close to $60 a barrel. Instead, Russia didn't agree with any of those things. And so today on the market, oil is down to $43 a barrel. It might go lower. Great news for you at the pump. But one half of Canadian businesses traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange are connected to oil. What's good for you and I at the pump is not good for those. And that's one of the reasons why markets are again down today. Uh, getting back to Timmy's, many were complaining because they didn't want, uh, you know, Timmy's is just changing way too much for uh, for Canadians, whether it's this, that, or the other, and we could debate that till the cows come home. Yeah. Uh, many were complaining that now they were, you know, fooling with the uh, with the incredible roll-up, the win, uh, rim-to-win promotion, and we don't want to go to an out. We just want it the way it always was. Does the coronavirus uh, allow them an out out of all of this? Does it help or does it hurt? Well, it it may. So let me just say there are two camps of people. It's like the Tim Hortons lid with the maple leaf on it. There were a group of people who didn't like the old lid because it leaked, and they loved the new lid. And then there's people who love the old lid who hate the new lid. Well, it's the same thing with the Roll Up the Rim to Win contest. There were people who said, you know, it's the same old, same old. It's the same one that my grandma had. It's time for you to refresh it. Get into the game. you got to get some technology in there. And so Tim Hortons has tried to update, refresh, find the word you like, to of this contest. Uh, inevitably, there are people who say, I don't like change, <laughs> I don't want to go anywhere. And there are other people, like the students I teach here at the university, who are thrilled to death 
to have another app on their smartphone, another reason to stare at their phone and not talk to one another and play that way. I, I think Tim Hortons is in one of those damned if you do, damned if you don't things. In fact, I thought what was clever about their refresh of this contest was this bridging. There would still be some cups, and you could actually still roll up the rim, but if you wanted to be environmental, they'd actually give you more virtual rolls on their app. And so they were trying to be a little bit of both. Uh, I, and I, you know, I, I, I want them to innovate. I want them to try some new things. And I think we've got to allow them a little flexibility. We can't get too set in their ways. Uh, if Tim Hortons was just to go back baking their own donuts in their own little stores, would that solve a lot of their problem? <laughs> no, because they've saturated the Canadian market. I joke that the next Tim Hortons will come to a kitchen near you. You know, where are they going to open more? Because we as shareholders, we keep wanting more growth. So what Tim Hortons actually has to do, uh, they have to start, again, growing the number of stores, but they can't do it in Canada. They've got to do it in other places. So part of, the, part of their dilemma is how do I keep Tim Hortons fresh in Canada at the same time that I want to expand it in places like China or the United States or in Europe, and how do I take you know, new ideas from there and bring them back, much like McDonald's has around the world. McDonald's have been very successful taking their concept elsewhere. The whole idea of the restaurant brand's international partnership with Burger King and the power of that company was that that might help open the doors to that international expansion. I actually think they are making some progress internationally, but in the meantime, they've kind of lost sight of the national aspects of this, and that's caused them some problems. They also had some problems with their um, with their franchisees, and that led to a little revolt there. For a while, we had a fight going on there. I think everyone's getting back on board. I, I still believe the long-term future for Tim Hortons is fine, but you got some growing pains along the way. Uh, why is this so hard for restaurant brands international? It seems when they take over other uh, brands, they do quite well. Why are they struggling with Tim's? Well, I'm not sure I'd give them the pass you just gave them. They've only got three. <laughs> so they've got Burger King, and, and Burger King works very well really outside of Canada, and it, much like McDonald's, translates well to some other markets around the world. But they, so, did, they did see growth once they took it over, correct? Some growth, yes, and again, that's because of international expansion. They've been doing growth outside the United States and North America. Their home run at the moment is something called Popeye's Yeah, Chicken. Popeye's is doing quite well, I understand. Doing very well, 13% year-over-year growth. It's the star of the restaurant brands international. But I'd also point out it's easier to do 13% when you start with a very, very small base of stores. Right. When you start with 4,500 stores or 6,000 stores, it's harder to do that when you start with maybe 500 stores. So... Uh, I, I would say the other problem with Restaurant Brands International is uh, the brain trust. There's a significant amount of management and money, if you will, from South America, Brazil specifically. They have a method of running the companies which tends to be very cost-oriented and not necessarily creativity or innovation-focused. And for them to succeed, they've got to have a little blend of both. There's a new CEO who came into Tim Hortons midway through 2019, and he's the one trying to get this thing sorted out. Um, but again, he's got to do this fight on many fronts. I, I think he is starting to get a handle on it, but I think it'll still take six months to a year before things start to settle down. So donuts aren't the answer here. 
Well, you may know that they came out with uh, three extra enhanced donuts, Dolce de Leche <laughs> and Strawberry Confetti. But do people, do people want the Strawberry Confetti, uh, Marvin, or do they just want it uh, the way it tasted before when it was baked <laughs> in the store? Well, but again, this is the problem. Here yeah. locally, we've got a few people like Donut Monster who sell these gourmet donuts at three bucks a piece. Yes. And, and they succeed at this. But they're making them in the store. Well, yes, I understand. But Tim Hortons looked at that and said, well, maybe we should try some of this. Same thing with the Beyond Meat burgers. Maybe we should try some of this. Yeah. I give them the credit for the innovation, but you shouldn't try ten things at the same time. Do one, do it really well, go as deep as you can, and then do the next one. I think there was just a little too much fiddling and not enough focus. And that's why Donut Monster's doing well. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, they're specializing on one thing. Those are the decadent donuts, and off they go. Yep. It's much like coffee roasters. Yep. Tim Hortons is the cup of coffee you have on the way to work or, or the hockey game, whereas some of these... Uh, um, shall I call them boutique roasters, yeah. uh, they, they give you a, a superb cup of coffee, but you're not getting it for a low price. It's a, a personal treat. you got to pick one or the other. You can't be both. Marvin Ryder, business professor, DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University, talking everything from pipelines to Tim Hortons. Marvin, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Will do. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.